Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Again, just that downstairs brain where all of that just uh, easy functions or the things that just kind of happen, the, the bodily functions that happen, fight or flight response and all of that. Upstairs brain, a little bit more of the detailed stuff. But then there was a second, I said there was t- another kind of half of the brain, and that is the right brain and left brain. And you've probably heard this most of your life. You've heard people talk about there's right brain people and there's left brain people. And that's true to a certain extent, but it's also not true. So everybody has a right brain and a left brain. Now, yours might be a lot stronger uh, than others, but you're generally, look, for the people who uh, need a little bit more help remembering things like me, uh, I think of L as left and logic and language and learning, okay? So that helps me remember my left side is all the L words are on that left side. I'm learning, I'm doing the, the logical stuff. You can see all the words over there, analytical and uh, the logic and strategic and science and all that kind of stuff is kind of left brain. And on the right side is more of your emotional things. Uh, it's more, you know, some of the words over there, are, uh, betrayal or, or uh, it says the art of uh, poetry. I thought that said betrayal. But same thing, the feeling... I mean, not that poetry is betrayal, but, you know, that, that feeling of feeling betrayed, feeling passion, feeling creative, you know, all the feeling stuff is over there on the right-hand side. And so you have two halves, and your kids have those two halves in the brain. So the right's responsible for creativity, it's responsible for arts, it's responsible for the emotions, and the left brain is more about that control and analytics and mathematics and all of that kind of stuff. So here's the thing about those two halves, right and left, and the other two halves, upstairs and downstairs, and this is why I said connections are key, because I'm trying to connect downstairs to upstairs, and I'm trying to connect left brain to right brain. They don't often play well together. Okay, In fact, they don't really play at the same time many times. You're either really highly emotional, uh, or you are... Uh, you know, you kind of get out of that brain and you can think a little bit more clearly. So it's hard for them to work at the exact same time, but you are trying to kind of bridge the gap between them. I got this a long time ago from Mr. Lonnie Jones, but you think about kind of on a, and you can't see the bottom lines, but when you think about a graph like that, when your emotions go up, when they get bigger, what happens to the intellectual reasoning? It goes down, right? So uh, I'm assuming somebody today will probably watch an Alabama game. I'm not going to talk about my emotions from last week or the week before, but um, you're saving me a little bit from some of those emotions today, at least uh, up front. But have you ever watched a game and you see a guy on the sideline, uh, maybe it's toward the end of the game, it's a really close game, and he hits somebody like 10 yards out of bounds, and the flags all come flying, and everybody in the stands is going, what? What was he thinking? And the answer was he wasn't. 
he let the emotions go up, and his reasoning went down. He had went right-brained. And he was, that guy had said something about his mama, or that guy had done something to make him mad, or that guy had been, you know, punching him under the, the pile or doing something. And they got into his right brain, and he shut that left brain off, and he wasn't thinking anymore about what he was supposed to be doing. He had got over into it. And our kids do that. You ever had your kids go on a tantrum? You know, and, and you just, it doesn't, you can try to reason with them. And they do not hear reason at that moment. And we're going to talk about what you kind of can do in those moments or try to do in those moments. But you're trying to connect right brain and left brain. You're trying to uh, bring calm and help them understand even the upstairs and downstairs. Because when a kid gets frightened, they kind of do the same thing. Well, that fight or flight kicks in, and I've got to try to help them understand the the, the thinking and, and what's going on and that they're actually safe in these moments. So I kind of heard it described this way too, and I, and I probably won't get the science completely right, but um, when you get that fight or flight response, if somebody kicked open, I was looking to see if there was a door, but is there a door right there? I think, yeah. So if somebody were to kick, I don't know if it goes outside, but if somebody were to kick open a door and... You know, we're sitting here talking and we're in the middle of a conversation and you hear that door slam. Every one of our brains is going to immediately, the amygdala is going to send a signal to whatever we need to do. Run, fly, you know, run away or fight or do whatever we need to do. Our brain does that immediately. If it is a threat, we're going to continue in that moment. But let's say they kick the door open and in walks somebody that you know that goes to church with you who just was goofing around and didn't think about it, and the moment your brain sees that, then a different signal is sent, which is a lot slower than the first one. And it's going to go and say, hey, everything's okay, shut it down. Okay, And so your brain will begin to calm down. But those two signals may go at the same time. So there's like an initial signal, and then there's a signal that's kind of a little slower that you know, takes in the surroundings. I think it's called the OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, and act. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take in that surrounding, and then once I realize, oh, we're okay, I, I calm back down again. Now, if it's a guy with a gun or it's a real threat, we're going to continue into that process of running or fighting, okay? And so your brain has all of those things going on at one time, and your kids have all of those things going on at one time, and theirs is still growing, and they're trying to figure out what to do with all that. So, we want to, you, what you have to do in those moments is you start speaking to them with the right brain. Okay? Now, how many times have you heard when a kid does something wrong, the first thing that we say to them is, you know that's not the right thing to do, right? Anybody ever heard that? Do you think that helps? Probably not. Not in the moment. Now, later, you'll see the tears and they'll get upset and they'll understand when all that other stuff's calmed down. So you can take your fist or your hand and put it up like this. And some people, image of the brains kind of look like this. You've got the, the downstairs part that's right here. You ever heard of flipping your lid? Whoop! You, know, <laughs> you flip that lid and it's all emotions. 
And over time, we help them understand that wasn't right, that wasn't good. We're going to use the upstairs part to get it again, you know, to kind of come back into where we're supposed to be. But at first, it's all emotions and it's all raw. And you go, well, you know that wasn't the right thing to do. So what do we do about it? Well, we connect with them on that right brain, loving touch, empathy, validating their feelings, listening, reflecting. Those are the kind the things that you think a counselor would do. That's what you do, you know? You don't come in my office and I go, stop crying. Why get over it? You know, I mean, like, that's just not the way we do that. But it's hard as a parent not to do that. I'm a counselor and I still struggle with it with my own kids. Sometimes, especially if they've done something they weren't supposed to do. You know, one of my favorite phrases is, you got to be tough if you're going to be stupid. But anyway, I know that might not be a great phrase to use with the kids, but... I mean, sometimes it's true, right? You did something that had a consequence. But in the moment, it's not the right thing, okay? In the moment, what's the right thing is connecting with them. There's a great book, and I told somebody, I'm going to have all these books kind of at the end on a slide so you can write them down, but um, how to talk so your kids will listen and how to listen so your kids will talk uh, is a really great book. And I want to share with you a couple of thoughts from it that, that go along with this idea, okay? And what they suggest, or what in, in the book, what, what they talk about is, first of all, just listening quietly and attentively. When your kid comes in, if you want them to share with you what's going on in their life, you know, what it is they're upset about. They have an illustration of a little boy that's so mad about something one of the boys on the street did to him, and he comes in ranting and raving, and I want to punch him in the face. Well, what do, we first, what, what do we want to do at that moment? Now, you know what? You can't punch him in the face. That's wrong. Jesus wouldn't want you to do that. I mean, that's kind of what we want to do, right? We want to jump in there and go, now, you can't have those emotions like that. That's the tendency, okay? But what they say is listen. Just listen. I think that's in the Bible too, right? James chapter 1, verse 19. Every man must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That also speaks to the other way, but hey, that kid comes in there ranting and raving, just listen for a moment. Listen to their side. Listen to what's going on. Listen to what's happening. And then they say, acknowledge their feelings with just a single word. And when we talk about a single word, it's like, it, it, it's real simple, like, uh-huh. I think I lost my thing. It's like, uh-huh, hmm, I see. I, I think I understand. You know, something along that way. When they're talking, they're trying to tell you this stuff. Well, Billy did this, and I just want to punch him in the face. And I'm like, okay, I see. I understand. You're telling them I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm following you. I'm listening. Not saying anything back to them yet. And then the third thing is you name the feeling. So at the third point, you, you help them. How, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? Are you seeing any connections to what we were talking about earlier? I'm naming the feeling. I'm going, oh, I see where you're at over there in that right brain. You know, I see what's going on. You're upset. You're angry. You're scared. You know what? Scared and angry look a lot alike sometimes. Um, and there's a lot of feelings that sometimes... You ever had a dog that, that got hurt? and then bit you. They didn't bite you because they didn't love you. They bit you because they were hurt. Guess what? Hurt people hurt people. They do it all the time. Okay? So when they're hurt, they're going to say things that are hurting. We have to realize they don't always mean the things they're saying. If my son came in and said, I'm going to punch him in the face, 
I probably know my son doesn't mean that. But I also know that, hey, there's a feeling you've got there. So let me help you connect to that feeling. You're feeling very angry right now, aren't you? You're upset right now. You're scared. They may think they're angry and they're just scared. They may think that they're having some emotion and maybe they're not. And so you're helping define what it is that's going on with them. Like, that sounds frustrating. Man, that must upset you. I can see that you're angry. It looks like you were pretty disappointed or you're disappointed in them or whatever. So you're, you know, grow that vocabulary of feeling words so that you can use those and help them understand those. And is that going to help them later in life too? Great book called Emotional Intelligence that says one of the reasons that we have so much violence in our world today is that we're not, our kids aren't getting taught that very well. And for generations we've struggled with, we, we talk about intelligence in school and growing all that, but we don't teach them how to deal with problems. And he talked about how the author of that book is Goldman, Daniel Goldman, and he talks about how um, you know, when people are hiring CEOs, they may look at your IQ and they may look at my IQ and our IQs are pretty similar. So how am I going to make a decision on which one of these guys to hire? I want to know which one's good under pressure. I want to know which one can handle stress. I want to know which one can get along with their peers and don't yell and scream at people. And there's a lot of people who then that makes people rise to the top because they go, Hey, a lot of people have emotional intelligence. Some people do, not a lot of people do. And so there's a lot of things that that has implications for, aside from the church, but just in general. So helping them name those feelings and understand them. And then the last thing they say is give their wish in fantasy. So you're saying, that sounds weird, I know, but it's, um, I wish that, you know, I wish I could make that banana ripe for you right now. You know, I wish that I could take you outside right now, but it's raining. You know, I wish that I could go with you on that trip. I wish that I could be at the ball game, but... So they're upset about something, but you're saying, I would give you that. I just can't right now. Okay? So I understand where you're coming from, and I wish I could do that. And so in that moment, you're listening and you're talking to them. You're listening so that they will talk, and you're talking so that they will listen. And most of the time in those situations, when you come out of that deal, you've allowed them to figure out how to work out their own thing. And so that was one of the the really big moments in that book that was so great was, you know, we oftentimes want to tell kids how to do it. Well, by doing that, we make them more frustrated. And I've been guilty of it. I do it too. still do it. Probably did it this week. Okay. But helping go, okay, how do I guide them? How do I make suggestions? But how do I let them ultimately make those decisions? It makes a big difference in whether they're going to come talk to you again. Because if every time your kids come talk to you and say, I'm so mad about, or I did, and you go, you shouldn't be thinking that, guess who they're not going to come back to? Because they're not free to share, and oh, I have bad thoughts, and because I have bad thoughts, my parents think I'm bad, so I can't share that with them, and they're going to push that down, and then they're going to deal with it along the way, okay? So it's a whole lot better if they keep talking to you, and you can have that 
you know, connection with them and help them connect right brain to left brain and have uh, them connect the downstairs to the upstairs part, okay? Any questions about that or thoughts or maybe you've seen it or, or haven't or things that you have witnessed in your own family? Okay, so this is another piece of that, okay, before we leave it. What do I mean by this? Do you agree or disagree? Yeah, It's not really reality, right? I, I would disagree if I'm saying, well, perception is always reality. It's your, whatever your reality. That's kind of a, a term that, or thought that's thrown around today. But... The way I perceive something has, will become my reality. So if I saw it happen or I, I've had, I can't tell you how many couples sit in my office and he tells one side of the story and she tells another. I don't know which one's telling me the truth. They're probably both telling me the truth. But it's the way he saw it and the way she saw it. And it doesn't really matter. I can tell them, well, that's not what happened. No, that's what I saw, right? And you've seen people who, that's what I saw. That's what I heard. Okay, so I don't say that to mean that it, it is actual reality, but for your kids, if they feel like, and I'll just kind of share this, um, you know, I've had, my kids have had coaches where they felt like the coach didn't like them. Well, they might play another player over them who's not better than them. And so their perception is there's only one reason why she wouldn't play me, it's because she doesn't like me, you know, or whatever the case may be. And so their perception becomes their reality, right? So when you think about that, you might have seen this. If you guys follow Lonnie Jones, you might have seen this. Don't ruin it if you have. What does that say? Ice cream's good, right? That's what it looks like, but it's not. Not only does it... Not only does it not say ice cream is good, it doesn't say anything, right? And so your perception said, well, that sure looks like ice cream is good, and now I'm wanting ice cream. But, um, but it, it was, your mind has this ability to fill, try to fill in the blanks, right? I'm going to fill in the blanks of what I think you meant when you said that. And you couples have probably had a... a point in time where you've had an argument, I can't believe he said that to me. And when y'all finally try to work it out, he goes, I didn't say that. I didn't mean to say that. You know, it was either I didn't mean to say it or you heard something I didn't say. And based on your bias, based on what's already there and what you're thinking, you hear all negative or you hear all positive. And when you see your brain starts to go, well, that comment, and I've done this. I've been so frustrated. You ever get just frustrated with life? Frustrated at work. I'm frustrated with whatever. And then when I get home, the first thing my wife says that might could be taken negative, all of a sudden I'm blah, right? I get, I get angry with her, and she didn't mean anything by it. But my bias that I brought into the situation did. Uh, kind of interpreted it that way. And so it's very easy, and we can say we don't do it, it's very easy for our brains to get a little bit biased uh, and, and start thinking things, and then we hear things that aren't actually said, or we say things that we don't really mean to say, and so we end up kind of in a, in a place. 
that's a little bit more difficult. All right, so I think this is where I was going to give you a brain break, but we're not going to take a brain break uh, right now. Uh, I'll just throw that stuff out there. We do a podcast that's on mental health every week, um, the Helping Healy Humor podcast, and then every fr- every other Friday we do the Friday Refresh. Uh, it's just the one on the left is about 30 minutes, the one on the right is about five minutes. Um, and it's just some things at benandtravis.com. If you're interested in those things, just most of it's free, uh, and we just like to help people with their mental health. So if you get a chance, I was going to leave that up during break, but we're not taking a break. So I want to try to watch this video, and you've probably seen it before. Anybody seen this video before? The, the backwards bicycle? Okay, good. So we're going to try it, see if it works. Hey, it's me, Destin. Welcome back to Smarter Every Day. You've heard people say it's just like riding a bike, meaning it's really easy and you can't forget how to do it, right? But I did something. I did something that damaged my mind. It happened on the streets of Amsterdam, and, and I got really scared, honestly. I, I can't ride a bike like you can anymore. Before I show you the video of what happened, I, I need to tell you the backstory. Like many six-year-olds with a MacGyver mullet, I learned how to ride a bike when I was really young. I had learned a life skill, and I was really proud of it. Everything changed, though, when my friend Barney called me 25 years later. Where I work, the welders are geniuses, and they like to play jokes on the engineers. He had a challenge for me. He had built a special bicycle, and he wanted me to try to ride it. He had only changed one thing. When you turn the handlebar to the left, the wheel goes to the right. When you turn it to the right, the wheel goes to the left. I thought this would be easy, so I hopped on the bike, ready to demonstrate how quickly I could conquer this. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Destin Sandlin. First attempt riding the bicycle. All right. So, the faster I go, the better. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I couldn't do it. You can see that I'm laughing, but I'm actually really frustrated. In this moment, I had a really deep revelation. My thinking was in a rut. This bike revealed a very deep truth to me. I had the knowledge of how to operate the bike, but I did not have the understanding. Therefore, knowledge is not understanding. Look, I know what you're probably thinking. Destin's probably just an uncoordinated engineer and can't do it. But that's not the case at all. The algorithm that's associated with riding a bike in your brain is just that complicated. Think about it. Downwards force on the pedals, leaning your whole body, pulling and pushing the handlebars, gyroscopic precession in the wheels. Every single force is part of this algorithm. And if you change any one part, it affects the entire control system. I do not make definitive statements that often. But I'm telling you right now, you cannot ride this bicycle. You might think you can, but you can't. I know this because I'm often asked to speak at universities and conferences and I take the bike with me. It's always the same. People think they're going to try some trick or they're just going to power through it. It doesn't work. Your brain cannot handle this. For instance, this guy. I offered him $200 just to ride this bike 10 feet across the stage. Everybody thought he could do it. No, No, you didn't understand. You didn't understand. So... This way. <laughs> All right, so, uh, whatever you're in. Quickly! No, no, you have to keep your feet on.
Once you have a rigid way of thinking in your head, sometimes you cannot change that, even if you want to. So here's what I did. It was a personal challenge. I stayed out here in this driveway and I practiced about five minutes every day. My neighbors made fun of me. I had many wrecks, but after eight months, this happened. One day I couldn't ride the bike and the next day I could. It was like I could feel some kind of pathway in my brain that was now unlocked. It was really weird though. It's like there's this trail in my brain, but if I wasn't paying close enough attention to it, my brain would easily lose that neural path and jump back onto the old road it was more familiar with. Any small distractions at all, like a cell phone ringing in my pocket, would instantly throw my brain back to the old control algorithm and I would wreck. But at least I could ride it. My son is the closest person to me genetically and he's been riding a normal bike for three years. That's over half his life. I wanted to know how long it would take him to learn how to ride a backwards bike, so I told him if he learned how to ride a backwards bike, he could go with me to Australia and meet a real astronaut. Are you going to give up? No. Go ahead. This is how it starts. Look at this. This is such a big deal. Get up. You got it. Did you see his brain get it? So he, in how many weeks have we been doing this? Two weeks? In two weeks, he did something that took me eight months to do, which demonstrates that a child has more neuroplasticity, am I even saying that right, than an adult. It's clear from this experiment that children have a much more plastic brain than adults. That's why the best time to learn a language is when you're a young child. All right, today's bike log. I can ride smooth, I can ride fast. I'm thinking the experiment is over. Okay, now I'm in Amsterdam, a city that has more bicycles than people. The question is, can I ride a normal bike now? I mean, I've spent all this time unlearning how to ride a bike. If I go back and try to ride a normal one, will my brain mess up? So I've tweeted a Smarter Everyday Meetup, if you will, and I'm gonna see if somebody brings a bicycle and I'm gonna try to ride a normal bike. It's backwards, it's backwards. This was one of the most frustrating moments of my life. I had ridden a normal bike since I was six, but in this moment, I couldn't do it anymore. I had set out to prove that I could free my brain from a cognitive bias. But at this point, I'm pretty sure that all I proved is that I could only redesignate that bias. So what you're not seeing is just a group of people here looking at me, looking at the strange American <laughs> that can't ride a bike because they think I'm dumb. But I'm actually two levels deep into this because I've learned and unlearned. All right. After 20 minutes of making a fool out of myself, suddenly my brain clicked back into the old algorithm. I can't explain it, but it happened in a very specific moment. Yeah. I got it, I got it, I got it. I'm back. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it clicked. It clicked. Hold it, it clicked. I got it, I got it. Okay, there it is. There's the moment. Okay, I can run a bike. I tried to explain this to the people around me and they just didn't get it. They thought I was faking the previous 20 minutes and I couldn't get anybody to believe me. That looked like I faked that, didn't it? Yeah. Just a fake. Yes. You think I'm faking. You don't believe me. That looks so weird. You were like, You think I'm lying, don't you? Yeah, I do. I'm not lying. I felt like the only person on the planet who had ever unlearned how to ride a bike and I couldn't articulate it to anyone because everybody just knew that you can't forget how to ride a bike. So I learned three things from this experiment. I learned that welders are often smarter than engineers. I learned that knowledge does not equal understanding. And I learned that truth is truth, no matter what I think about it. So be very careful how you interpret things, because you're looking at the world with a bias, whether you think you are or not. I'm Destin. You're getting smarter every day. Have a good one. Okay, if you want to support smarter, I think, smarter every day, you can I think you said that he lives in Hartzell?
Is that correct? So I thought he had to live in Alabama somewhere, as crazy as he was. But he had the Alabama hat on. I saw the Huntsville on there. So why do you think we watched that? Is there anything that, that went along with what we're talking about in there? Yeah, just the neuroplasticity of a child's brain. that they, that they I mean, It took him eight months to relearn something, and it took a child two weeks to learn it. Um, and, and so when we're talking about that we're developing, that we're growing, that we're helping these kids, you know, that was sort of one of those left brain deals, a left brain experience, uh, you know, trying to learn something new. But those neuro pathways on the right side are going to work much of the same way, right? Because they're going to, the way I learn to deal with problems, the way that I learn. So we spend a lot of time with school working on this left side. And sometimes we also need to be helping them learn how to deal with their emotions and deal with the right brain stuff. So all of those pathways, now, there's another piece of that is if you didn't learn how to do some of those things early on, how easy is it to change in your adulthood? Pretty difficult, right? If it's difficult to relearn how to do a bike, that may be sometimes where we we have to fall on some grace sometimes with people because we go, why do they keep messing up? Why are they still taking those drugs? Why are they still doing this? And we've tried to help them. We've tried to help them. Well, Take some time sometimes to reroute. And did you hear what he said? Like he could ride it, but he was very quickly, he would jump back to the old way. Like he, as long as he was staying really super and hyper-focused, he could stay on it. But the moment his brain started, you know, a phone rang or something else, he jumped off that path. So probably teach us that with adults, we need to have a little bit more grace, but how important it is to establish a good foundation, right? A good foundation with our kids, and not just biblically, but in their you know, education and in their emotions and in all those different things. So I just think it's a really cool video in and of itself, but I thought that it illustrated that well. Anything else that you noticed in that or any thoughts that you had in it? All right, so let's talk about number three on this list of things that we can do to sort of help the kids navigate uh, their life. And that is understanding the idea that processing is productive. We need to help them process. So after we can get them calmed in a moment. So if they're in that you know, rage monster moment and we've connected to the right brain and we've tried to help them and know that I understand, then there's going to be a time to help them really process those things. Um, I, I was thinking about, and, and I hope this, this illustration sort of makes sense with it, but if you go to 1 Kings chapter 19, and, and you've probably heard a lot of people talk about mental health using 1 Kings chapter 19, this is the point where Paul, ha- or not Paul, why did I say Paul? Elijah, um, not exactly sure why my neuro p- pathway jumped right there, but Elijah is, uh, has just defeated the prophets of Baal, right? And Astra, and this is in First Kings chapter eighteen. That happens in chapter nineteen at the beginning of it. What event takes place, or what is said to him? What's what goes on in his life? Do you remember? Jezebel says, "I'm what? Yeah, it's a death threat. I'm going to do to you what you did to those prophets. If I can get my hands on you, so you know all of the time. And by the way, I mean." 
over and over again, God has supplied for Elijah, right? He, he started off in a wilderness with ravens bringing him something to eat. Okay, trusted God through those moments. Lived through a famine. Um, watched as God raised the, the woman and Zarephath's son. Uh, you know, all of those different things that happen. And then he gets a death threat. And he's running scared. He's getting out of town. And it's like his emotional, that, that, that right brain kind of kicked in. He knows over here that God is with him. He knows what God can do. If God can bring down fire onto his altar and obliterate it and, not, and their gods don't do anything, then what he knows is not the problem, right? He gets taken over by what he's feeling. She's after him. She's coming for him. I'm all alone. You notice how many of the statements he makes are more feeling statements than they are like, I know this. Like, I'm all alone now. And so when he goes to the wilderness or goes to the mountain, you know, he leaves. Again, he makes really dumb decisions because he leaves the servant even and goes farther than the servant. And then he has the gall to say, I'm all alone, God. Well, of course you're alone. You left everybody back in town. You know, you're not with anyone. So yeah, you're alone. But when he gets up there, what happens in that moment is kind of interesting to me because he gets up there and the angel lets him sleep and gives him food and just sort of allows him time to calm down. And then when God finally does speak to him, God says to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Tell me about it, Elijah. What's going on? What are you doing here? And Elijah says, Well, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, they've torn down your altars, they killed your prophets with a sword, and I'm alone left. And they seek to to take my life and, and to take it. Earlier he had said similar things. I'm just, I'm done. That emotional thing. Well, the funny thing is, not funny necessarily, but God doesn't go, well, you know better than that, Elijah. You notice that? God doesn't reply that way. God's allowed him to sit up there and process this. And then when he does speak to him, he just tells him, hey, how about, how about you get active in doing some stuff? Elijah, I'd like for you to go Go return on your way in the wilderness to Damascus, and when you arrive, you'll anoint Hazel king of Aram, and Jehu the son of Nimshi, and you shall anoint the king over Israel. Uh, Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Malak, Malah, you shall anoint as the prophet in your place. And, you know, he talks about that there's still those who have not bowed down. And so he allows the right brain sort of to settle down, and then he says, hey, let me give you some things to do. Let me give you some things to focus on. And when Elijah starts focusing on those tasks, then that feeling of I'm all by myself sort of goes away. God sort of did the same thing we're talking about in helping him process those things that he's going through. So as a parent, you might think about a, uh, a remote control when it comes to this. Sorry, I, and so... This is about as close as I could get to a remote control that had the buttons I wanted. So you got... Fast forward button, you got the the rewind button, and you got the stop button in the middle. So think about with your kids when you're wanting to process what has happened, you know, whatever event it was. Kind of help them, hey, we're going to rewind back. 
Let's look at what happened. Now, pause the story, and let's talk about what maybe you could have done differently. What are some ways that you could have acted differently in that moment? You know, you did that and it really hurt your brother's feelings, or you did that and it hurt your friend, or, you know, you did that and you got in trouble. There was consequences. So what could you have done differently that might have had different consequences? Positive consequences, good things that would have happened. And so you can rewind, you can pause, you can reflect on whatever the the things are, and then you can kind of speed back up or maybe fast forward in the story a little bit and go, okay, look, do you see what those consequences look like? How did that feel? How did it feel when you got in trouble? How did it feel when they went to the principal? How did it feel when whatever the consequence was? Uh, If you want a good game to play with your kids to talk about consequences, shoots and ladders. Pull out shoots and ladders. I do that with my kids at school all the time. I go, Let's, let's, let's play shoots and ladders. And when in shoots and ladders, you land on something. If, I don't know if y'all remember shoots and ladders or not. But if they do something good, like if they save their money, there's a little ladder there if they land on that one, and it goes up here and they're at the fair or whatever, you know. And then you get on up, and if they stole a cookie from the cookie jar before supper, you know, you have this chute that takes you down, and there's a broken jar, they got in trouble, all that kind of stuff. And so, a lot of times I'll talk to them as we play the game, and when they hit the ladder and go up, I go, hey, tell me about a time when you did something and it had a good consequence. Tell me about a time when you did something and it turned out well. And then when we hit a a chute or a slide, I'll say the same thing. Tell me about a time when you did something kind of had a bad consequence. And I do that a lot of times with the kids that are continually getting in trouble in class. You know, let's talk about some things that you can do differently. What could you have done differently that time that wouldn't have done that? That might have turned out differently. Who could you have talked to? What could your response have been to your friends? Like, what are some of the things you could have done? So a lot of times I'll take games with individual kids, and we'll use games, um, take Jenga, and talk about, you know, a lot of times we say things to people And when we're pulling those things out, we think, oh, we're making ourselves better. But in the end, it ends up falling, okay? And so you play those games and talk about different concepts and things. It helps them see. So as a counselor, this is just another little note. People talk, like adults talk. You get them in there and go, hey, tell me about what's going on. Blah, 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 blah. They'll talk to you forever. Kids play. And they need to act it out. They need to play it out. They need to do something in a game form or in activities that will help them be able to process it a little bit better. Because they're not good. See, they haven't gotten that upstairs part completely developed yet. But the downstairs part is. So you got to kind of play with them, do some things, throw in a ball, something to engage some of those things to help them process. So just a couple little notes. Any thoughts on that or questions? So the fast forward, the rewind, the pause, and then a couple of things that I think need to happen. One is we're trying to help them exercise the upstairs brain, okay? So how do we exercise the upstairs brain? Well, we've got to allow, this one's tough, this one's really, really tough for us as Christian parents, but we've got to allow them to problem solve, and we've got to allow them to make mistakes. 
That was tough sometimes. We do not want our kids to make mistakes, and we don't want them to have to to deal with the problems of mistakes. And that's not just a Christian thing, but how many times have you known people whose parents got them out of every trouble they ever got in? How much did that help them in the long run? Not usually. Not very much. They have to learn how to make mistakes. And they have to learn how to figure out things on their own. And so exercising that upstairs brain. Now, remember... Remember uh, Hanama Bay that we were talking about earlier? There's, a, there's a certain waters you let them wade into. I don't go, oh, my kid's running out in the street. Let's see how this takes, you know, let's see how this goes, right? I'm not going to do that. But I am going to help them connect to when I say stop and they don't, I might give them a lick on the bottom. Because the next time we're in the yard, and I say stop, and they keep running toward the road, they're going to get a worse lick, right? So there's a point where I go, okay, I'm going to let them make some mistakes and go, that's what happens when you do it. There's certain areas that you don't do that. Obviously, you don't want them running into the road. But when they make mistakes and when they do those things, we then help process that. Let's talk about what just happened. Let's talk about how that got you in trouble, we can't protect them forever from making mistakes and messing up. So give them enough a leash that they can make a mistake, but not so much that they're going to end up hurting themselves, right? So you've got to give them a little bit of leeway. And, and every kid, that may be different. Every family, that may be different. But giving them the opportunity to struggle, because if they don't struggle then they're probably not going to grow. You've probably all heard the story of the butterfly, right? You put a butterfly in a cocoon. There was somebody one day saw the butterfly trying to get out of the cocoon, you know, and as, as it's growing, the caterpillar's trying to grow the wings, and they're like, I just can't, I can't handle that struggle. So they cut it open to let it loose, and what? Can't fly. Because the very process that allowed it to fly was the struggle. And so sometimes you've got to let them struggle you got to let them get through some of those times when they're friends. Or, and you can help them through it. You can talk them through it. But don't, don't take them out of it. Don't uh, try to cover for them or, or, or not allow them to go through some of those struggles. And that's really tough sometimes. So exercise the brain. The second thing kind of in this area would be to demonstrate your own understanding of emotional intelligence. How do you handle problems? How do, what do they see from you? We kind of mentioned this earlier when we're talking about um, our parents. How did your parents demonstrate problem solving? Um, what that they did, did you learn from? And, you know, what have you started passing on to your children? You know, what are some of those areas that we can help them understand emotional intelligence? How does it look in your home when you get frustrated? I'm not asking you to necessarily say that out loud. I don't believe in arguing with my wife in front of my children in everything. Okay? I think major things we try to go and talk about without the kids present. But it's okay sometimes for them to know that, hey, we're working on something. We're working out, and here's how you argue. I meet with kids all the time that all they ever see of their parents arguing is screaming and yelling and throwing things. And so guess what they're going to learn to do when they have an argument? 
scream and yell and throw things. And so if you, they don't see you have conversations with, arguments with, or, or at least disagreements with someone, and they don't see you demonstrate it, it's going to be hard for them to learn. They're going to learn it from somebody. They're going to learn it from their friends, or they're going to learn it from TV, or whatever the case may be. So what words and actions or actions do we demonstrate for them? You know, what kind of words do we use in conflict? I love Colossians chapter 3. There's all sorts of good stuff in Colossians chapter 3 about, you know, we've been raised with Christ, therefore we're living differently. And it talks about, you know, the unity that we have with each other and the compassion and uh, the peace and all of those different things. And kind of at the end of, of that section where he's talking about all of that, to the Colossians he says, and then in whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That means with his stamp of approval. The way you handle conflict, let it be the way that God would want you to handle conflict. And that's a demonstration and that's a teaching to them of what they need to do as well. Uh, Do you react to situations similar to your parents? Do you react differently than your parents did? Let me just stop right there. Anybody want to say anything about that or any observations you've made about that, whether your kids act like you or you acted like your parents in any way? Or did everybody want to be different than their parents? Yeah. And some of that is, hey, dad makes mistakes. Dad messes up sometimes. And, you know, let's talk about what dad could have done differently. I've done that with my kids. I've said, I should not have said that to y'all. I should not have said it that way to y'all. I was disappointed in what you did or whatever the case was at the time. I don't remember, but um, I've said that. Like, I shouldn't have done that, and I'm sorry. That's not the response I should have had. And I don't expect that kind of response from you guys. You know, so while we're talking about it with that left brain, we know I'm going to share with you that that's not the way that we act, and I'm in trouble, (laughs) you know, and you will be if you act that way. So we're going to, you know, we kind of have that back and forth, and then that way when they say, well, you did it. Yeah, but remember, we talked about that. Neither of us are supposed to be doing that. And I did it wrong, but that doesn't mean you're supposed to continue. So, you know, that's a learning process. But I think, you know, we grow up thinking our parents, I think on some level our parents can't do wrong sometimes. I mean, I don't, I, I don't remember, I didn't have that, that much of a rose-colored glasses about my dad, but we overlook a lot of things our parents do, you know, and we kind of gloss over it unless we're just in a really rough situation. Uh, we try to gloss over those things and ultimately remember the good stuff. But, man, we do latch on sometimes to the way they do things. Anything else? I'll take that as a, we're good to go. Uh, the la- the kind of last thing in this section is teaching empathy. What is Empathy. I got a definition for empathy. Okay. Putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Any others? It's not the same as sympathy. Sympathy is feeling bad for somebody. Empathy is feeling with somebody. I'm I'm in that with you. And if you're hurting, I'm hurting. Sounds like a Bible verse, right? Rejoice with those who... Rejoice and weep with those who weep. Man, two passages that really 
I, I, I love, um, I spend a lot of time on, one of them being Philippians chapter 2. Uh, and, and really, the whole chapter is great, the whole book's great. But he begins Philippians chapter 2 by simply saying, uh, you know, I want, this is how I want you to live. And then in verse 5, he says, have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. So he's, he's saying, all these things I just said are the mind that Jesus had. And then he describes what that looked like. But he says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affection and compassion, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And really look at these two. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interest, but also the interest of others. Uh, There's so many times in the Scripture where Jesus was in a moment of empathy with people. Um, He didn't didn't have the sin that other people had, but he tried to step into their world. You know, the woman at the well, he stepped into her world. Give me a drink of water. Can't give you a drink of water. You're a Jew. You guys are... You know, you think we're filthy. Just draw me some water, you know. And he actually goes on to say, well, you know, if I, I if you'd have known who I was, you'd ask me for a drink of water. And so he, he shares a moment with her. The woman who comes and washes his feet, same kind of thing. Everybody else is looking down on her. He is there with her. He's in an empathetic way. He's not going, hey, get off of me. He's empathizing. And then when Paul writes Romans, the second verse that I wanted to talk about kind of goes along with it is Romans chapter 12. To be a person of empathy, you have to have humility. So that first verse is all about humility and the second one is also, you know, has some things about humility in it, but it kind of feeds into the other thoughts. So be of the same mind, verse 16 starts, toward one another, do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what's right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Be at peace with all people. Respect what's right in the sight of all people. And as far as lies within you, be at peace with all people. And then that idea of if you're, you know, if they are weeping, you weep with them. If they are rejoicing, you rejoice with them. If they need a cup of water, if they're thirsty, you give them something to drink. If they're hungry, you give them something to eat. You're in that moment with them. Titus chapter 3 and verse 14 is another one of my favorite verses. Our people must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. There's this idea of we are so at one with each other that we know what the needs are and we meet them and we're right there with them, feeling with them. And that is such an important thing to have with our kids as well. Be present with them in the moment. So I'm trying to remember what time did we say we were going to finish up? Was it 3.30 or 3? 3? Three thirty, whatever. We'll we'll finish when I get done. I guess. No, I'm just kidding. I won't keep y'all any later than what your cutoff time was. Um, but I have one more thing that I wanted to share. One more kind of section I wanted to share with you. I was just trying to get a, a gauge on that.
Oh, I went back. And that is coping skills. Coping skills are crucial when it comes to our kids. We all have coping skills, right? So you have either adaptive coping skills or what we call maladaptive coping skills. What's the difference? Good versus bad. I started to say benadaptive, but that's not actually a word. So like beneficial versus uh, maladaptive or, or things that are not good for you. But we all have adaptive and maladaptive coping skills. Can you name, it doesn't have to be yours, but just think about it. Are, what are some maladaptive coping skills? Or thing, maladaptive things that we cope with? That might not be skills. Overeating junk food. Thanks a lot. <laughs> All right, so what else? That it? We just overeat? What? Hitting, okay, I got emotional and I, I hurt somebody. What? Yeah, I'm not going to think about this. I'm not going to talk about this. I have a lot of people that I deal with that that's their problem. Either they still are doing it or they've done it for so many years then they've gotten to this point and they're, I've had it. I don't want to have anything to do with anybody. I don't want anybody to talk to me anymore. I'm like, you know, all along the way you kind of had those moments. So what else? Shut down, yeah. Stonewall, get, get back there. Don't want anybody to talk to me. I'm done. What else? Defensiveness. Criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, all those things kind of John Gottman talks about. So what else? Sarcasm. I like sarcasm. Anyway, (laughs) no, that one's okay. No, I'm just kidding. But yeah, we do. uh, Sarcasm can be one. What else? Yeah, projecting your problems and mistakes on other people. Alcohol, drug use. Uh, anything, what? Fight or flight sometimes, yeah. So fight or flight is important when there's something to run or fight, you know, run from or fight. Um, it's a it's a God-given thing. It's there for a reason, but sometimes it happens in times when you don't want it to happen. Uh, when you've had trauma, th- that starts in the amygdala. There's also a great book called Eek Said Amy. It's for kids. And it's, um, it describes the amygdala to kids. And the, the amygdala is what sends that signal. Well, when I get up to speak and I, you know, my heart starts racing and I start sweating and all that stuff, well, that's the amygdala going, ah, there's a problem. And there's not really a problem. There's not something to be scared about. Really, there's not a fear or a threat, but your body is telling you there's one. And so sometimes it triggers itself at the wrong time. So it's the right emotion at the wrong time or the right response at the wrong time. So it's what God put there to keep us safe, but sometimes it gets triggered in situations that it's not a problem or shouldn't be a problem. What else? Anything else that y'all can think of? So I would say on some level that, that, that fight or flight is adaptive because it's just natural, but there's pieces of that when I start fighting with and choosing to fight instead of coping or dealing with, then yeah. Or choosing to run away. We've already talked about that. Some people just shut down. They run away from the problem. So what are some adaptive behaviors? What would you say would be more adaptive in nature? 
Okay, exercise is a good one. Now, can you make that a maladaptive one? Can you over-exercise? Yeah. I mean, there's people who use that to cope and they, they turn it into a maladaptive one, but with done within reason, it's, it's very adaptive and helpful. What else? What? Prayer? Absolutely. Reading? Reading your Bible or other things, you know, just kind of getting escape on some level. You know, it all depends on what we're talking about. Are we talking about stress? Are we talking about, you know, arguments with other people? There's all sorts of different things we could be discussing. But yes, prayer and reading. What else? Uh, Deep breathing and meditation. I'm going to talk, we're going to talk a little bit about some of these in a minute. But I just wanted to kind of get what yours were. But yeah, that's a great one. What else? Good communication, yeah. Instead of shutting down, I'm going to go, we're going to talk, and we're going to work this out, and we're going, to, we're going to deal with it on some level. So, yeah, that's a good one, too. Anything else? Naps. <laughs> hey, I mean, Elijah was told to sleep, get up and eat, and go back to sleep again. So sometimes it is. Now, if he'd have done that for a month or two, then we'd probably went, that's not good. So just like exercise. You know, eating and sleeping can be the answer to some things. Um, that whole Snickers commercial, great marketing, right? You know, when, when you're not yourself, you know, when you haven't had something to eat. That is an actual true thing, you know, you get hangry. Uh, we talk about hungry, angry, lonely, tired, bored, and stressed. Halt, I know it doesn't sound nice, halt BS, but that's what it says. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, bored, stressed. Those are the six areas where people become their weakest. Okay, so men and women who struggle with pornography, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, bored, stressed. People who struggle even sometimes with alcohol and other things, those are the weak moments. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, bored, stressed. So when you get in those moments, sometimes I do just need to eat. I need to eat something. I need to go walk. I need to talk to someone because I'm lonely. I need to just do some of those things that are just normal things, but I have separated myself, like Elijah did, from the healthy, good things, and I need to think about what's my diet look like? Um, what's my workout regimen look like? What, you know, what am I doing in these different things? During March, uh, during March Madness, one of the things I do in the classes with the kids is I take an old basketball and um, I asked them to give me ideas of things they can do when they're upset. And we write on the basketball all these different ideas. I can go for a swim. I can go for a walk. I can exercise. I can breathe. I can eat ice cream. I can, you know, they get all these different things. And then um, I'll have them fill out a March Madness bracket. And I think we usually do like 16 things. Maybe we do 32. I don't know. But we, we start on this sheet and they fill out all those things. And then I have them go through and go, which one would you rather do? You have each of these two. And so they do that and they fill the whole bracket out till they come up with their favorite coping mechanism, basically. So here's these all these things we can do so that they think through it. Here's things I can do when bad things happen. Here's things I can do when I get upset. Here's things I can do when, you know, I'm, I'm struggling in different areas. So um, that, that's, that's a huge thing. Maladaptive versus adaptive. So in that fight or flight situation, I want us to go back to that for a moment. What all takes place in our body when that happens? 
physiologically, what happens? And, and let me just say it this way. Let's think about it when you go into, anybody ever had a panic attack or had stress and, and you really felt it in your body? Okay, so your amygdala is triggering usually with a panic attack when it doesn't need to. Like you, I've got friends who were overseas and had things happen, you know, around them. And in those moments when they see something or smell something or whatever around them that reminds them, they're back there. And that's not their fault. It's their amygdala goes, similar is same. So your brain doesn't know the difference in similar and same sometimes. So it sees an imprint of the sand. You know, if you put your hand in the sand like this, you're going to pull it away and there's, a, there's an imprint of your hand there. That's what happens in the brain when you've had trauma. There's an imprint. Well, the next time something looks like it matches that imprint, guess what? My, my triggers start going off. And when I start getting that emotion, then my heart, or when I start getting that fight or flight from my amygdala, my heart rate goes up. My breathing starts getting deeper and more labored because I'm going to have to run or I'm going to have to fight. And my, my skin begins to glisten because I'm sweating. Um, I might feel sick at my stomach because if I'm going to run or fight, guess what I need to do? I need to get rid of it. And that's, you scare a deer, scare an alligator, scare something, they're likely to do that, okay? Um, so one way or another, I'm going to feel like i got to go to the bathroom or that i got to throw up. So almost every organ in your body responds to that threat. My ears kind of get that real perked up. I'm, I'm really listening. My eyes might dilate. I mean, all that stuff happens or, yeah, whichever way that is. But they, they start taking in everything around it, Right? So everything in my body starts responding. Which of those things can I control? Can you control your heart rate? Not not easily, right? You can, but it comes through a different system. I can't go, stop sweating, okay? I, I, I can't... I can't tell myself to, uh, you know, okay, belly, it's, uh, you know, quit, quit feeling like you're, you know, going to throw up. Now, I can say, I'm okay. I can talk to myself. But what can I control? You said it earlier, right? Breathing. And my, I, the lungs are the reset button of your body. If you can start breathing normally, you can reset everything. It's almost like sending a signal to the brain going, Hey, we're good down here. Everything's all right. Checks out. You know, nothing going on here. So if you can start breathing normally and you can start kind of trying to shift out of that emotional brain into the left brain. So with your kids, when you're dealing, when they're dealing with those things, breathe. Hey, just give me some breaths. Just, and it's not breathe deep and it's not breathe shallow. It's just normal breathe. Okay. Um, there's some things you can download on the internet with your little kids. I do this with the TK in the kindergarten. Um, I download this rainbow picture, and we talk about God and the rainbow and all that kind of stuff. And you can start with them here. I have them color it so that they can feel the color. You know, colors have a, a texture to them when they've colored them. So they can kind of feel that, but then they can run their finger up it, and they breathe in and breathe out. Breathe in. And breathe out, breathe in, and breathe out. 
and we'll just sit there and practice. Breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. And it kind of gives them something to do, something to focus on, something they can feel. So there's a lot of different coping skills that people learn or can learn. And a lot of it has to do with that. Sorry, I didn't click the slides in time. But it has to do with that, um, you know, the breath that we have. So fight or flight or freeze. We don't usually talk about the third one. But have you ever, you know, walked up on a deer out in the woods? They don't immediately run. Generally, they don't fight unless you corner them somewhere, okay? But they're going to freeze at first. Why? Why do they freeze? Why is that one of the responses? It seems dumb, but why is it a response? Overload sometimes. I think there's maybe another reason. I I struggled with it for a while. That's what I kept thinking. I think if you've ever been in the woods before, a deer doesn't look like it could be camouflaged. But I've literally sat in a tree stand before and been watching all morning, and all of a sudden it's like, ta-da, and there's one sitting there. And I'm like, where did you come from? Like, I didn't see you walking through the woods. They're so quiet. I heard every squirrel in the woods, but I did not hear you. And, and it was right there, and it's so camouflaged. So at first sign, they go, don't move. Because if I don't move, they don't see me. And they're accurate most of the time. Well, if you're in class and you start getting worried that she's going to call on you, what are you going to do? She's not going to see me. You know, my, my, my oldest son, I'd say graduated this last year. He was in uh, TK or preschool. And when he graduated to go to kindergarten, I can remember him standing up there in front doing this. And I was like, you know everyone can still see you, right? Like, he thinks, okay, I can't see you, so you can't see me, right? And so there's that idea of I'm going to freeze in that moment because I don't want to get called on. I don't want to be seen. And so I think the brain says, hey, a lot of animals in the animal kingdom, they can do that and survive. Uh, And so it's all that natural process that God put there to begin with. But then when you're kind of pushed, you get end up going into to something else a lot of times. So um, so I wanted us to think about a couple of different things that you can do uh, and, and that you can do with your kids to help them process, to help them kind of do all of the stuff that we've talked about today. And one of those is just writing expression. Um, let them journal. I tell a lot of people that I work with, just journal. Write your feelings down. Some people aren't really good at talking about them. Write them. Write poetry. Write songs. Um, teenagers especially, they are, you know, I said sometimes I talk to people about teenage brain and we don't get into as much into that this time, but um, their brain is so creative. It's the most creative time in your life. So many things have been invented. So many great songs have been written by teenagers, okay, because they're creative, because they are really right-brained. They're into that emotion all the time. They're constantly upset about something, okay? So they're, they've got that brain, and so they do really good with it. So express, write those things. Do poetry, do journaling, do whatever. Anybody in here done that in the past at some point? Found it helpful, maybe? Um, you know, so that some of those things that you can do. Um, another thing that you can do with your kids is teaching them mindfulness. Anybody familiar with mindfulness? Okay, so um, 
Will you help me do something real quick? Somebody, can you pass a sucker out to everybody? You don't have to eat it, okay? So we talked about junk food. Here comes the suckers. Um, Just pick one, whatever. Uh, I want you to think about, we'll get to that in just a moment. But while he's passing those out, mindfulness is being aware of what is going on around you, okay? Most of the time, if I'm in a panic mode, uh, I'm worried about something that is, especially as an adult maybe, but kids too, I'm worried about what's going to happen or I'm worried about what has happened, right? So think about times that you panic or you're stressed. Like right now, is there any stress in anybody's life right now? Okay, I'm raising my hand because I have some, okay? So I'm not, is there a threat around me right now other than I'm public speaking? To some of you, it's like, yes, you're, in, you're publicly speaking. That's a threat to me. Um, but, but for me, I'm, I'm kind of used to this. So I don't, I get, this morning I was stressed about it. I'm in the middle of it now. I don't worry about it too much. But this morning when I was doing that, there's a thing about mindfulness is just, being aware of what's happening right now because, you know, when I was in my office this morning and thinking more about what I was going to talk about here, I wasn't here in front of you. So I was worrying about something that was coming or I was thinking about that time I messed up when I was speaking in the past, right? And so I wasn't in the moment. If I had just sat there and breathed and thought about what I could see, what I could hear, what I could feel, what I could smell, and what I could taste, the five senses, then I would be in the moment where I'm at. And so sometimes with kids, it's, hey, let's get in the moment. Some of you have already gotten the moment with that sucker. It's a good thing, okay? But when you, when you take that sucker, you can, you can get all five senses pretty much with a, with a dum-dum, okay? Um, you, can, you can hear the rapper, you can annoy the parents. You know, kids can annoy the parents by going around their teeth, right? Um, you can hear people on it, right? So you got you got the hearing down. You've got, I can see it. There's different colors. There's different textures. I can feel the different textures. Um, I can smell it, right? And, and so I've got all of those senses engaged in that moment, and so some of you probably enjoy a good cup of coffee in the morning. It's a great mindfulness thing. I'm, I've got that cup of coffee. I can smell it. I heard it, you know, when it was either in the, in the Keurig or when it was, you know, in the coffee pot, depending on how you do that. And so all of those things are kind of engaged. So when we are with our kids and they're really struggling in the moment, get them to focus. What can you see? I do a thing called three, two, one which is three things I can see, three things I can hear, three things I can feel. And by that I mean, like, don't go, oh, I can feel my pants. Oh, I can feel my hair. But like, I can feel my glasses on my nose. I can feel my shoes. I can feel my belt. You know, without moving, I can feel those things. And then we do two things, and then we do one thing of each of those. And by the time they get to the end of it, you're having to really think about, what else can I hear? See, when you just spend that, couple of moments of silence and you're breathing there's just a calmness and there's some relaxation that comes with it 
So I'm focusing on my breathing, and I'm focusing on mindfulness, the things that are around me. Um, Anybody do things like this? Anybody do those? These are awesome. Like, just... Just whatever. I've got a bunch of colored sheets. If you want some when you leave, you can have them. Um, but I do that with the kids. I, I had some parents walk through one time I was doing that um, with first graders in the lobby. And I put on music that didn't have words, just the Calm app. If you're not familiar with it, it's great. It's got good stuff on it. It's got music uh, for helping you focus, music for helping you because... I don't know if you know this, but certain beats per minute keep your mind alert. Certain beats per minute will cause you to feel sleepy. Certain beats per minute will let you relax. So there's different levels of that. So they have that to an art and to a science, I guess I should say, in the Calm app. And they also have sleep meditations. They have relaxation meditations. Matthew McConaughey ladies will read you a bedtime story, whatever. Um, so there's all kind of, all right, all right, all right, we're going to focus. So you got all of those different things that you can do in that Calm app, but I put it on the music, and I gave every kid a piece of paper and every kid crayons or colored pencils. And for 30 minutes, first graders, the whole 30-something of them, didn't really do anything but color. They didn't talk. They didn't run around. They didn't act like crazies like they usually do. And I had, like, teachers were, like, bebopping in, and they're, like, you know, looking around, like, what in the world? I said, they're just chill right now. Like, we're coloring and chilling. And so that's become a thing that I'll do with them every now and then just to go, hey, see how relaxing that was? And, and it's kind of amazing to see what they'll do sometimes. Um, I don't do yoga, but... Some of you might. So yoga, exercise uh, are a couple of things. Yoga is kind of a mindfulness thing. You're trying to focus your body to do this one thing. So teach your kids that. Teach your kids some exercises, walking or whatever else that they might do. And then just fun activities. We talked about that at the beginning. But what are some things that we can do together as a family? What are some things that we can do to encourage each other? Um, and let their mind not always be about the difficult stuff. Like, let's do some fun stuff, some things. That, and like I said earlier, you can play. Um, I talk When I talk to kids, a lot of times we play the matching game, you know, the one where you flip it over and then you flip it back. And that one doesn't really have a therapeutic meaning as much as it's just something to do while we talk. So they're engaging in something and then they'll talk. We might play trouble or we might play... Uh, like I said, shoots and ladders, um, Jenga, just whatever else just to get them engaged. Or we might draw, or we might color pictures. So there's a lot of different things that you can do to sort of engage your kids to help them learn some coping mechanisms. Because if they don't learn the good ones, then they're going to learn the maladaptive ones. And then we're going to have to deal with that. See, don't we want to set those neuropathways early on the right path so that when... You know, they may jump off of that one, but it's a whole lot easier to bring them back to that one rather than them having all these maladaptive behaviors. We don't have time to go into and talk about uh, ACEs, um, but the adverse childhood experiences, I would encourage you, there's some TED Talks on that, just to learn about it. And most kids at some point have had one of the 10 ACEs that they talk about. Some of those are very 
you know, big, like, you know, they've seen a parent either put in prison or a parent that's died or they've been molested or abused in some way or there's been something um, traumatic like that. And those traumas in their childhood can sometimes be things that we really want to deal with so that later on they're not dealing with the, those adverse things as adults that they never kind of fix that maladaptive behavior from. So there's a lot of things along that line. Um, so that was our brain break. Uh, that's kind of the end. Um, there's, there is um, most of the books that I talked about today. I don't think I mentioned Feeling Good, but there's uh, a lot of mention in that book of cognitive distortions that we sometimes fall into. Um, we call it stinking thinking. You know, we, we think about things as all or nothing or uh, that we mind read. Somebody looks at me weird when I walked in, so they must have been talking about me and then that ruins my day. You know, or they treated me differently, so they hate me. I'm kind of reading minds or saying that I understand something when I don't, um, I don't really know the reason. And so I put those little things in my brain and then it causes me to have a bad day. So those are all some really good books. Maybe they'll be helpful to you. So I had said that I would have kind of a, a break and then a period of questions. So uh, let's just talk about some questions right now, and then we might just end a little early. Is anybody going to be upset with that? Y'all be upset with me on that? Um, so what are some thoughts or questions? What are some things maybe from today that that surprised you or that maybe you had questions about just anything. Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, that, that one's one of those difficult ones to know, but that's kind of them trying to, you know, establish their own self. Like, I'm, I'm and, they're, and they're testing boundaries. Okay, what's going to happen when I say no? You know, how's that going to affect? So they're starting to build some of those connections upstairs, and they're really not sure what to do with it. So I think what you're doing is good. I mean, you can either kind of sit it out or you know, try to talk about what that means when they say no. At two years old, it's really tough. It's just what they do. I mean, they're, um, like I said, those connections aren't completely established. So, um, you know, redirect. We, I don't know that I mention that word a lot. Sometimes it's just about redirecting. You know, if, you got it, if you're locked up in a moment, let's do something different. Let's just get the mind off of that and go a different direction. I'm not going to give you your way, maybe, but we're going to redirect and go somewhere else with your emotions or your thoughts. Um, that's a that's a big part of when they're really hyper emotional. They're saying things, you know. Then hey, let's get off on something else for a little while, and then we might come back to that. But you know, and giving them choices at at two, uh, and at other. I know you can't give them all the choices that they want, uh, but even growing up, I think there's appropriate choices that we give them. How about instead of so that it's not a yes or no, you know. Look, I've got two different things for you to wear. Which one would you like to wear? You know, or we could either wear these boots or wear these boots. Which ones? And you're allowing them to make choices rather than here you're putting this on. No, you know, and then you get into that argument. 
Um, so I think if, if it's a situation where you can present options, then that sometimes is helpful. I'm not always good at that, by the way. Don't take this to mean I'm perfect at these things. Sometimes I, I forget to, and I just go, you're not going to tell me no. You know, and we get into a rrr, rrr. So, but I would think that the options are a good thing there. Somebody else, you got something that you've done in those moments to help that might help her with those comments. Some of you have mommed longer than, than we have. Yeah, still a choice. <laughs> it might be a consequence and this, or it might be two different things that I can choose from, but it's still a choice. And that's life, isn't it? The rest of your life, there's choices, and they're all going to come with different consequences. Everything you say yes to is something else you say no to, so let's let's make those choices. You had your hand up, too. No, because you can't go too far with that. I I like your choice idea, but there has to be some negative consequence because when they get to be 14, they cannot... You know, say, I will do my own thing no matter what you say. Right, yeah. Not letting them get away with whatever it is, but it kind of, I guess it depends on what the scenario is. You know, if it's a, I'm upset because of what I'm wanting to wear. I want to wear this and you want me to wear this. Sometimes there might be, I tell my wife that a lot. I'm like, you know, that would probably be a less of a problem if you just give them some choices. You know, this is okay and this is okay. But it, it's hard to do that in the moment. I say, I think it's really good if you think of the think about choices before they tell you no. Because, I mean, maybe when they say, yes. but I would like to wear, well, then you do the choices. But after they say no, then there's this thing about God and his children um, defying him that you have to put in them real early. Yeah, yeah. So there's some, there's some things to be thought about there for sure. Um, and I think thinking ahead and going, okay, when... When I speak to them, helping them make choices, because there's a very real, another spiritual part there is they ultimately will make the choice to follow God or not. And it has to be their choice. You can tell them, this is what you have to do, you know, until they get to the point where they're not in your house anymore. And then they're having to make those decisions on their own. So there's, that's two is what you're trying to help them get to. You can make some choices, you can't. But it, two, you know, it's, it all, is kind of a process. There's going to be certain things I'm going to... I mean, my teenagers tell me no. I go, look, you don't have that right anymore. You know, you can't tell me no on certain areas. So that's, that's good points. Anything else? Any other questions or thoughts? I appreciate you guys kind of being guinea pigs. I've, I, I talk about this stuff all the time uh, with my kids and... Uh, at school and and different ways, but I've not really presented to kind of the young kids' brains stuff as much um, as I have teenagers, so kind of a a new thing for me a little bit to do that. I'm glad that we've gotten the chance. So any questions or or comments or anything are welcome. I enjoyed the time we spent. I thought it was very insightful. I appreciate that. Thank you. I've enjoyed it as well. Yes, sir. Um, and those of us kind of already know, but when our kids were growing up, we learned that foods, certain foods, they had a significant impact on the emotion, mm-hmm. uh, artificial colors, flavors, and preservatives. And so to this day, we cut those out almost 100%. Mm-hmm. 
that's really awesome. We're able to figure it out. Absolutely. And kind of along that line, um, I'll just say this. I, a lot of people don't like medication. I, you know, as a counselor, I'm not a big, huge proponent of medication. I do think that there's times that it's necessary, just like you're talking about. There's times it's really necessary to make a change in diet. Um, it really depends on the scenario. So I think sometimes we have a tendency to go, well, this is the only way to do it. It's not. Sometimes it, you know, there's other ways. My usual thing is try to do you know, counseling or natural things like you're talking about. I try to encourage people to do that before you start putting the, any of the chemicals, you know, any kind of chemicals into the brain. That's not saying it's a bad thing. Sometimes people need that, and it just depends on the diagnosis. It depends on what's going on with the child. Um, I would much rather them have a medication that helps them than them be so, you know, and we're maybe getting into the teenage years more, but somebody that's so depressed that they're going to take their life or do something, you know, those are the things that I go, hey, let's, let's get them on a medication, let's get them on, and I'll recommend that to parents or to adults sometimes that, look, for right now, I think you need to be on something. Um, but I do believe in even if you're on something, there's probably a need to have therapy as well and talk about it because we can cover it with medicine or we can treat the symptoms with medicine, sometimes we got to get to the root of the problem. Does that make sense? So I don't want, you know, I, I know that was kind of off topic, but that's a question a lot of Christians kind of end up having. And by the way, mental health, it is, um, it's, this, is a, this is a computer that's up here. And so I can throw a hammer across the room and it's still going to work pretty good. I toss a computer across the room, and I've probably lost most of its function. And that's kind of how it is. We break our arm, where do we go? We go to the doctor, and we have them set it. We don't go, well, you should pray about that more. I'm not saying that prayer is not powerful. But we don't usually tell somebody with cancer, don't worry about going to the cancer doctor, we're going to pray about that, because we know there's a natural process that, you know, in the medicine and different things that we need. But we haven't traditionally looked at mental health that way. We've traditionally said you should be praying more. You should be reading your Bible more. And sometimes those things help. But sometimes there's more to it than that. So it is okay. And we should really try to help people lose the stigma of counselors and psychiatrists and other things. A psychiatrist is a doctor who went through med school and then decided when he had to choose whether he's going to be a, a, a physician, just an everyday physician, family physician, a, a surgeon, or um, a mental health, which is the psychiatrist. So they've gone through the same trainings that doctors have. They've just went into that field. So it's not something scary. It's not something that we should make people afraid of. Generally speaking, at least with me, you're coming in and we're having a conversation. And I'm going to maybe try to get you to brainstorm some ideas that are going to help you. And so it's not something to be feared or something to be avoided. Um, it's something that's helpful most of the time. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email 
to WBS at westhuntsville.org.